Rimar Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson & Johnson Vision Tier Science, Airy, Novartis, and Santin. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. It's been really fantastic uh, hearing all the feedback that we've gotten from so many around the country and around the world who've been tuning in and listening in. Uh, we are learning uh, about this just like everybody else. Things change uh, hour by hour. Um, it happens both with the diagnosis, the treatment, uh, how patients are doing, where the disease is spiking, et cetera. But it is also happening in Washington with all the regulations and all the things that are happening as we all try to move forward and help out where we can. Um, today, we're going to be talking uh, with Arnold and Porter, uh, attorneys that we're all very familiar with. Uh, Blake will introduce them in just a second. But we're going to be talking about a concept of uh, hospitals without walls and also talking about telehealth, uh, the ins and outs and how to sort of um, maximize what you can do with telehealth. So, Blake, why don't you introduce our guests? Yeah, sure, Gary. Again, I think it's uh, such an important uh, topic, and we're, we're happy to have experts here. There's so much going on with CMS. You know, your ASCs can now be used to treat hospital patients if you want. Uh, there's uh, you know, telemedicine, uh, you know, things that are being extended for everyone in, in CMS, and, and also the, all those advanced payments that we're learning about. So we thought we have to have some folks on here who uh, know what they're talking about, so they can kind of walk us through that. So uh, we have Allison and Tom and Paul here. Um, and uh, Allison, I'll let you uh, take it away. Great, thanks, Blake. Well, thanks everyone for um, joining us this afternoon. And I, I for, on behalf of all of us at Arnold Porter, hope that everyone is staying safe and healthy and uh, not not experiencing uh, the, the sickness uh, part. Um, so we, uh, so my colleagues Paul Rudolph and Tom Gustafson and I are going to focus today on Medicare waivers. So actions that Medicare has taken to basically give some regulatory flexibility in order to match the surge in medical service needs um, that are out there. Um, just to give you a little background, I know most of you, I'm sure, are on the on the phone, but uh, my colleague Tom Gustafson is a PhD economist who um, spent 30 years at the Health and Human Services, um, and his last position there before coming out and joining us in the private sector on the, with um, our legal, our law firm, he uh, ran uh, the fee-for-service Medicare program for many years. Um, so he is intimately familiar with many of the regulations that are, are now being um, temporarily waived. Um, my colleague, Paul Rudolph, is a certified endocrinologist, internist, and lawyer. Um, he spent many years as a medical director at a MAC. He also was at CMS and worked with Tom um, on a number of um, significant physician and hospital ASC policies. He then went to the FDA for a period of time before coming out into private practice, and three of us have been practicing together for almost 15 years. Um, so we certainly have some experts um, to help provide some insight into these options and help you guide through them. Here's our phone numbers and our emails. Feel free to use them if you have questions after this. So I, I, I thought we'd start off with a little bit of humor relief here. Um, this is the first Zoom meeting that I've participated in, I'll tell you, in the last four weeks where I actually allowed myself to sign into the video because it's the first time in about four weeks I haven't had a baseball hat on. So um, you should feel privileged to that. Um, but anyway, I think all of us have done a little bit of this. So 
relief at seeing some other human beings other than your, your spouse. Um, everyone checking out co-workers house. I'm in my basement um, because this is the only place that we have a 50-50 chance of not hearing my dogs bark. Um, and I did take a shower, so this is good. So our topics for today, um, as uh, Gary and, and Blake mentioned, the first one is gonna be Hospital Without Walls, the initiative um, to help hospitals expand their reach um, for surge. Then we're gonna talk about some of the telehealth waivers and really trying to get some clarity for you in terms of what the options are um, beyond telehealth with e-visits and, um, and other mechanisms to reach your patients and how you're gonna get paid for those. And then lastly, um, we're gonna talk a little bit about the advanced payments from CMS and whether or not they make business sense for your practice. We're gonna do this in three sections. Um, one of us will present a couple of slides on the topic. Um, then we'll open it up for Q&A on that topic and then move on to the next topic. We thought it might be easier to do that rather than us walk through all the slides and then take a smattering of questions at the end. So I'm gonna start with Hospital Without Walls. So I think many of you may have seen or heard of, um, had been part of listservs where there's a lot of chatter about what the options are now, particularly for all of you who are owners and investors in ambulatory surgery centers that may be completely shut or down to you know, minimal patient care at this point um, to potentially um, make those ASCs active and, and, and deriving some revenue for you. Um, the first one is what we call under arrangements. And this is just a term of art in the Medicare program. And really what it means is to have a contract between a hospital, and in this instance, it could be an ASC, it could be a clinic, it can be a diagnostic testing facility, where that entity is performing services on behalf of the hospital for hospital patients. So it's a way to, for the hospital easily to expand its site. Um, and this has always been in the Medicare law. Hospitals have always been able to do this for therapeutic and diagnostic services. So a good example is a hospital that doesn't have an MRI or doesn't have a PET scanner that needs access to that for patients. They may go out and have a contractual arrangement with a site that has that capability. And when they send patients from the hospital there, they, those patients remain hospital patients. The hospital actually submits the claim for those services and pays the site via a contractual arrangement. What hasn't always been in the law is allowing or giving hospitals permission to do that for what we consider to be more routine hospital services, both inpatient care and outpatient care. Um, and that's what this waiver does. It is giving the hospital the ability to go out and contract with almost anyone um, that has space or has services that they need in order to meet their surge requirements. So a hospital could go out and uh, contract with your ASC. Maybe it's to provide overflow ER, service, ER, ER services. Maybe it is to provide overflow hospital outpatient surgical procedures that still need to be done and they don't have the, the ability to do them or they don't, they wanna keep certain patients out of the hospital because they're high risk um, you know, for COVID and they want them out, they want them in a you know, sort of cleaner environment um, for a wide range of services. So this is the, the first option and, I, and you'll hear a bit of my bias in this. I think this is probably the easiest and quickest option um, for an ASC to sort of get back in the game and have some control over the services that it's gonna provide on behalf of a, a hospital. So 
these contracts, these seem like they're more or less um, like monthly or, or weekly rentals. It doesn't seem like it's fee for service. Or am I reading that wrong? So is, is the contract whether the hospital would use the ASC or not, or is it per encounter? Well, it certainly would be the way you negotiated it. But I think if you're giving up an opportunity and saying to a hospital, you can have my space or you can have almost all of my space. Um, in this option, the ASC still remains an ASC. So you may say, look, we want one OR for us and one bay, but you can have the rest. Um, and so obviously the hospital will want to be able to have the rest whenever it needs it. Um, so that it's going to be a case-by-case -case, um, negotiation. The counter to this is that these kinds of financial relationships raise issues under the kickback statute and the Stark Law um, historically. And uh, Medicare, in conjunction um, with these changes, has have basically waived the Stark Law requirements so that you can have a variety of um, financial arrangements here that you normally we would shy away from because of the law. And quite frankly, it also takes away some of the risk regarding fair market value because quite frankly, fair market value today is a premium, right? And so um, that those waivers help protect us on the fraud and abuse side as well. Thank you. Sure. The second option um, is what lots of people have been talking about is um, an option where an ASC can essentially um, enroll in Medicare as a hospital temporarily. Um, this is an all-in option, unlike under arrangements where I was saying the ASC still exists and so maybe you don't lease or, or offer all of it to the hospital. In this instance, the ASC basically goes away. Your, your NPI is deactivated. You are re-enrolled or newly enrolled in the Medicare program um, as a hospital and you are acting as a hospital, um, either until you cease and you want to disenroll yourself, or the um, Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services terminates the national public health emergency. So this is only during the period of time for the public health emergency. Now, obviously, hospitals have a host of state law issues. And so Medicare has the ability to say, hey, we'll let you enroll in our program and pay you as a hospital, but Medicare doesn't have the ability to say, and you don't, you don't have to comply with all of your state law rules for hospitals. So this option comes with the caveat that you essentially are working with your state and local healthcare departments who have determined that there is a need for expansion and that having you enroll as an ASC makes sense because quite frankly, they're gonna have to waive licensing you as a hospital. There's going to be no time to do that. There's going to be no time to have a hospital surveyor come out and look at your ASC. So this really is a state and federal um, program that needs to be done in conjunction. So for those of you who are interested in this, your first step is to make contact with your local state health department who licenses hospitals, as well as your local hospitals to see if they need the need because it's, you know, them advocating on your behalf that they could use your space um, or that they need more hospital space out there and having you enroll would be important. Um, Medicare has waived some of the hospital conditions of participation um, regarding actual plant requirements and some of the life safety code requirements that are hospital-based kind of requirements. But otherwise, you are expected to meet the, the conditions of participation just like a hospital. Um, many of those are very um, similar to those 
conditions for coverage for ASCs regarding anesthesia and nursing staff and medical records. Um, and so a Medicare certified ASC should be a long way to meeting the conditions for coverage as a hospital. Um, you would be paid hospital rates for services. Um, obviously that is a bonus um, because uh, those rates are higher in many instances than the ASC rates. Um, but you will now be submitting claims as a hospital as a hospital, and that claim submission looks different than we do for ASCs. Um, so I've, we've included some, uh, uh, some references here, but you would either need to um, have the ability from your billing system to bill as a hospital, or you would have to contract out to a third party in order to submit claims. At this point, Medicare has not said that they would accept paper claims. Um, but even then, the paper claims are different. They're not the CMS 1500 that you're used to. It would be CMS 1450s or UBO4s that would need to be filed, which is just a completely different situation and different setup for you. Um, ASCs that have had immediate jeopardy findings in the past three years um, are not eligible unless they have resolved those immediate je jeopardy issues through the normal survey process. Question real quick on sure. this. So let's say that you're an ASC that, that is now deemed a hospital. Your NPI number has gone away. You are, for all intents and purposes, a hospital. And let's say that for one reason or another, um, you're allowed to do cataract surgeries now. But there's still a potential that you need to, I don't know, have, have the potential to house hospital patients, but it's not happening. So let's say that you've got this arrangement. Your ASC is sitting empty because the hospital hasn't needed you yet. Could you do cataract surgery in your ASC and get paid at hospital rates? Right. Well, subject to the same, same, you know, limitations that are out there right now, right. On, um, you know, elective surgery, just because you may enroll as a hospital, it doesn't change. If your state um, has said no elective surgery, there's no elective surgery. Correct. And again, because you need your state health department, to, there, there's an attestation to this, which I'll show you in a, in a couple of slides. You're attesting to the federal government that your state has determined that they need your capacity for X or Y. Um, if you're not meeting that need, um, I, I think you risk at some point down the line when everyone's sort of, this, this is all over and people are going back over figuring out, you know, what's going on here? Um, why, why didn't they actually <laughs> fulfill what they were supposed to be doing? Um, right. It, this isn't this isn't a situation where we can just sort of get paid more for doing what we would have done anyway. A couple of other things to keep in mind: there is the possibility that your ASC could have a state survey visit once you convert to a hospital, um, but Medicare's already said that from their perspective, those state surveys should focus on infection control and proper use of PPE, as opposed to a full hospital state survey, which would um, be a nightmare for you all. Um, again, once the PHE is terminated by HHS, your hospital number will automatically deactivate and your ASC NPI will automatically be reactivated. And the way to do this, if you're really interested, is all you do is contact your MAC, um, tell them that you have an intent to enroll as a hospital. Um, they claim that they will review your application in two to three days um, and uh, let you know whether or not you are eligible. I just put in here for your reference um, the attestation that you will have to make, and it really is to one, that you worked with your state, and um, two, that you meet all of these 
conditions for coverage um, that you have these things in place, which as I said, um, for all of you who have, you know, really well running ASCs, which I know you all do, um, these things should already be in place um, for you. So you're just attesting to the fact that, that they are. Um, so I'll stop there. Um, Tom or Paul, is there anything you want to add in now on this topic? Otherwise, we can open it for questions. Nope. Not for me. So I'll ask, uh, I'll ask a question then, Allison. So, um, so advise me here. I'm curious, you know, for, for whom, what type of surgeon or practice would this work? And for what type of surgeon or practice might this not work? Because when I first saw this, I said, oh, wow, you know, this is an opportunity for us to, number one, do the right thing in case, in case you know, there is capacity and we need to you know, provide our services, but also, number two, to have some type of revenue when my ASC is sitting there empty. But then five minutes later, I thought, yeah, but, you know, when, whenever we get back going, I really want to get back going. I don't want to have to worry about some type of contractual advance notice and, and that type of thing. I want to be more nimble. So, so who might this work for? What type of practice might this work for versus uh, who, should, who should kind of sit on the sidelines for this? Well, certainly if your ASC is completely down and you're not doing anything in your ASC right now, I think you ought to take a look at both of these options. Um, I think I said at the beginning of this, I'm biased to the under arrangements situation um, because I think it also it gives you more flexibility um, in the sense that you can keep part of your ASC running as your own ASC and doing your own things if you have cases and maybe offering up a portion of your ASC depending on how large it is. Um, and those, you know, contractual arrangements, again, you'll be negotiating with them. They're certainly not going to be months of notice because, again, once the PHE ends, the relationship's going to end and the, the hospital has nothing to, they can do about that. That's just part of what the deal is, if you say, with Met, you know, for Medicare with these waivers. Um, and I, I just think I, I get nervous about having the ASC switch to a completely different billing system that people aren't familiar with. Um, one, just I don't want I don't want to see people get in trouble, right, for misbilling because they didn't understand it. And I I just I can't put a cost on that. I don't know how costly that would be in order for an ASC to convert um, or have their billing company that they may work with convert them to hospital billing. Um, so it, it just it has a lot of flags for me um, to have you completely enroll as a hospital. But that's just my bias. So, so, so in a situation like ours at Williams and I, we have a two-room ASC. I could potentially make one room the hospital and the other one keep, keep it as an ASC for us because we need it for emergency cases. And it would be reasonable, like you could give them maybe a two-week notice or something when you want your second room back. Perhaps that would be something that you could do. Yeah, possibly, depending on what they need. Or, you know, they may just need your bays, right? They may need places where they can send patients overflow from the ER, right, to, to be evaluated and um, use your space just for that and put a PA or an NP or even at one of their ER docs over in the ASC and divert patients um, over there to be evaluated. Um, or, you know, other situations where they could just really use the space. Um, and I said, you know, I could see this for patients who are potentially compromised, go, already going to the hospital and not wanting to have them show up in the ER where there may be a COVID patient next to them. Yeah, I think that's a misunderstanding that like, it's not going to be, your, your ASC is not going to be a COVID ward. It's probably going to be more of a step down unit for patients who are, had, you know, needed to be hospitalized for other reasons possibly. Right, right. 
Yeah, I just want to add one quick thing. There are also other liability issues. So in the first model, the one that Allison's biased in favor of, the hospital is still billing everything and is responsible for the care. So even if they lease your employees, they're still responsible for the care. So there are other liability issues which you need to think through if you enroll as a hospital versus not. Right. That's a really good point, Paul. The, the hospital has to maintain control under arrangements of those services um, and the quality of them and who's who's providing them. This also might be an opportunity to have the hospital lease some of your employees um, that are out of work, right? maybe furloughed right now, um, may give them an option to, to you know, get put back to work at the ASC. That's a great, that's a great point. Uh, something I was actually thinking about a little bit. Um, one uh, question, a couple questions have come in, so I wanna uh, respect our guests who are uh, attending. And if anyone does have questions, uh, go ahead and put those in the, in the Q&A section. We'll try to get to them as, as they roll in. The first question says, would they want a surgery center not equipped for general anesthesia? My, my guess is that in, they really want the space and they can determine what they'll do with that space. Is that hunch correct? Yes, I, I think this, this is an open conversation. If you have good relationships with your local hospitals and with the, the senior leadership there, this is the time to pick up the phone and say, hey, what, what can we do to help? And how can we provide some surge capacity for you? What, would, what do you need? Um, and then trying to figure out if you can deliver that. And then uh, Mark Contos. Hello, Mark, hope you're doing well. Um, ask, how would you determine fair market value for a month of use? I think that's a really good question. I mean, how do we even know where to start the negotiation? Of course, if you ask for a really low price, you're likely to get it. So how do we know how to negotiate this? I think you start with what, what they want you to be and how, what they're gonna be using it for. And obviously we think a little bit about what they're gonna be getting paid. Um, and you know the, the cost to your, to your ASC, right? You'll have to, the ASC is gonna have to be cleaned. It's gonna have to be reopened. It's gonna, you know, paperwork's gonna have to be different in the ASC. So there's all those costs just to get it up and running um, that there's no perfect model, but I think you can back in and making sure that we cover everything um, and think through everything that might be a cost to you plus a premium on that. Right, uh, and then uh, Renata Stone asks, is there a list of patient encounters and or surgery types that the hospital would expect the ASC to provide? Would it be fee for service or a flat rate? I assume if you're in this type of arrangement, it would be a flat rate whether, and then if you were enrolled as a hospital, the new NPI, then you would be more or less fee for service. Right, if you're enrolled as a hospital NPI, you're filing claims for whatever services you render. Um, and the, I think it would, in the hospital situation, it may be different. They may just say, look, we want your whole space. We'll give you X thousands of dollars a month and we're gonna just take your space and your equipment and sure, we'll take your nursing staff and some of your, your technicians um, and we'll play you a fat, flat rate. Because of the waivers and the kickback statute and the Stark Law, it does give them the option if they wanna pay on a per procedure rate um, if all they're looking for is to send you overflow um, outpatient cases that they can't do at the hospital. Um, but as I said, I, you know, my sense is, is that they may be thinking bigger than that and really just want the whole footprint, not just the ability to do surgery there, depending on what community you're in and how bad things are. And, and if you, Allison, if you have a single specialty ASC, like a lot of ophthalmologists do, uh, I guess in this situation, it would allow for non-ophthalmology procedures and surgeries to take place inside of your ORs. Am I correct in that? 
yeah, as long as they're equipped to, to do that. Um, and uh, again, the hospital may bring in some of its own equipment, um, depending on how desperate they are to, to stand up more space. Okay, excellent. All right. Uh, yeah, I think that's all the questions we have right now, unless others on the panel have anything to say. Nope. Okay. All right. So why don't we switch to telehealth and I'll, I'll kick it over to Paul. Uh, Medicare has waived a number of regulations with respect to office visits, telehealth, and, and other things. I'm just going to briefly go over each of them. The services that we're going to go over today are all considered by Medicare to be a little different. So the waivers affect the ability to perform telehealth services, and uh, those services are now defined to include uh, phones that have visual capability. So Medicare has really been behind the times with Skyping and, uh, and, and telehealth because it has not done anything to recognize the fact that many people have smartphones that have visual capabilities. And until now, using those phones to do telemedicine has not been allowed. So at the, with this waiver, you can, you can, you can Skype or use, uh, you, can, you can use other modalities uh, that are listed here with your patient. There are also uh, uh, no limitation anymore in the sites of service. The main one being that you can now perform a service when you're in your home or you're in your office and the patient is in their home uh, and you can still bill for it. Uh, in the past, uh, the telemedicine has been very rigid with not only the areas of the country that you're allowed, but where the patient has to be. In the past, the patients had to be in a healthcare facility and now they don't. Uh, you can see the allowed and disallowed modalities. The second type of service, second, third, and fourth here, are not considered telehealth services by Medicare. I think that's an important distinction because in, in people's minds, these all may be considered the same thing, but from a regulatory point of view, they're really not. And we all know for a long, long time that diagnostic tests, although they're not telehealth, you don't actually have to be present with the patient radiologists all the time interpret CTs and MRIs from a remote location, and they don't ever have to see the patient, but they can still bill for it. And that's obviously still allowed now as well. So virtual check-ins, which we'll get into in a minute, are, are very specific services that CMS has just created that allow for audio or audiovisual, whatever, contact with patients when you have not had a visit recently. The next uh, type of visit, which has been uh, affected by these waivers are online visits that are by email, basically. They don't have a visual and they usually don't have an auditory component. And then Medicare is also allowing telephone calls to be paid. And there's gonna be some interaction here between telehealth services and telephone in terms of what can you or can you not bill? Because if you don't, technically, if you do not use video, if you don't see the patient, you cannot bill for a telehealth service. So if you, it ends up being that all you ended up doing was doing a phone call, then that's what you need to bill for. And on an on a earlier phone call today with a client, there was an issue with, uh, with doing what they wanted to be telehealth services in a nursing home, but the patients couldn't get on the, couldn't be seen because of the way the audiovisual was set up. So it ended up being just like a phone call. And there's gonna be discussions about how those need to be billed. Medicare has also allowed these services to be provided to new and established patients. It used to only be, it used to be you can only provide telehealth services, check-ins, e-visits, phone calls to established patients. Uh, the, the other uh, good news is that, that the government will not sanction physicians who reduce or waive co-payments for all of these different services. 
Uh, and that's something you can have as a policy that in order to make sure that patients have access to you, you for this period of the emergency do not need to require them to, to pay their coinsurance. And there's also a relief under some of the HIPAA requirements because as you know, some of these modalities, Skype, Google Hangouts, FaceTime, do not comply with all HIPAA regulations. And so violating those regulations has also been waived, so you don't have to worry about that. So I'm gonna have one slide here on each of the four modalities. So for telehealth, for these visits, you, can, you need a consent, as you know, but the good news is you can obtain consent orally from the patient at the time of service, and you just have to document it. Obviously, if it's a new patient, you'll need to get insurance information so you can actually bill the patient for it, and that might be a little more cumbersome for you and your staff. Uh, telehealth, the, the types of services that are considered to be telehealth now and dramatically expanded. These four examples here are just four of many. For example, Medicare is now allowing physical and occupational therapy uh, to be billed uh, as, tele as telehealth, whereas they couldn't do it before. The other good news is that, and this is especially for physician offices, is Medicare is going to reimburse the doctor at the same rate as if the encounter had been in the face-to-face -face location. So the typical case here is that normally you'd see a patient in your office, and you would bill place of service physician office, which I believe is 11. Um, and then you get paid in your office the non-facility rate. If you'd done telehealth in the past and you were in your office and did a telehealth visit, you would get paid the facility rate, which is a lot less. So Medicare has changed that now. So now you would get paid the non-facility rate. So you'll be getting the rate that you would have gotten as if you were actually seeing the patient face to face, which is a significant improvement and increase in payment. They've also, in term, because all the office visits are included in telehealth, they do not require history or physical. They're gonna let the doctor choose the level of service, level two or five, whatever, based either on the total time the doctor spent that day or on the level of decision-making, and you don't need to worry about documenting history or physical. And then the last bullet here is just a technical bullet about the place of service that you need to use. So the next slide is about virtual check-ins. And I don't know how often ophthalmologists do this. This is really more for primary care doctors, but what Medicare did this year is they created two codes, G2012 and G2010, for like check patient check-ins. So if you look at the second one, the second one is a remote Oh, sorry, the first one, sorry, is 2012, even though it's out of sequence, is a brief five to 10 minute communication that is not related to any E&M service you performed in the last seven days or that leads to one in the next day. So one of the interactions here, since many of your offices have been closed, is, well, you think it's a slam dunk that you haven't done an E&M in the last seven days. But that may not be true. It may be that if you performed a telehealth visit two days ago, and this is a follow-up to that, that this would not be separately billable. So you have to be very careful on when you knowing when you can and can't bill these and the rules about the last seven days. Or if you, if you do a five-minute check-in and you say, oh, look, this isn't good enough. I need to do a real full uh, televisit tomorrow. Then you can't bill this either. So you have to be cognizant of those rules. It has to be a phone call between you and the patient, not the clinical staff. Again, as with telehealth, you can obtain the consent orally at the time of service. These codes can be, be um, uh, billed by mid-level practitioners. So if you have a PA or a nurse practitioner in your office, they can bill these visits, uh, as these check-ins as well. 
and uh, you have many varieties of, of, of ways of responding to a patient afterwards. I'm not going to spend any time on or much time on 2010. 2010, instead of being a phone call, means that the patient has sent a, 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 pho a photograph of some sort to you. I guess it could be a pink eye or something. And it's stored forward. So they would say, Dr. Jones, um, here, I have a pink eye. My eye itches. What should I do? And you have to get back to that patient uh, within the next 24 business hours after reviewing the, uh, the, uh, the photograph that they sent you. And there are no, no frequency limitations on this either. So this is the slide on e-visits. So this is a little simpler. These are established CPT codes. The three that are on here are for physicians. There are three other ones that are for non-physicians or people who cannot bill E&M services. Uh, since most folks on the phone can bill E&M, these are, these are what you can do. Now these, these visits are a little weird in that you bill them based on the total time you've accrued with a patient over a week. You can't report, uh, you cannot report a face-to-face -face service during this week. It's all gotta be by, by uh, email generally, it's online. And you need patient consent. So the idea here would be if you go back and forth by email with a patient, you're not on the phone, you're not doing a telehealth visit because you're not using visual stuff, that you then can bill one of these three codes after the week is up or after you've gotten to the number of minutes and you're done. And you can see the payments are not that high, but it's important to know that this is an option if you don't meet the requirements for a check-in or for telehealth. This is on telephone calls, and you can see on the right, those are the long-standing CPT codes for telephones. Um, uh, these three codes, and you can see the payment rates down there. These generally, the telephone calls have to be initiated by the patient or the guardian. Um, if the result of the phone call is that you are going to see the patient the same or the next day or do a telehealth visit, then you can't also bill for the phone call. Um, and similarly, if you did a telehealth or an EM visit a few days ago, and this is just a follow-up phone call, how are you doing? Then you can't report it either. Um, and what I did on this last slide is I've, um, I've compared the payment for the virtual check-in of five to 10 minutes with the payments for the phone calls. So you can get some idea of what that means financially. But, uh, and I, I, I hopefully when folks have these slides, you'll be able to have to compare the, the payments for e-visits, phone calls, check-ins, and telehealth visits to get an idea of what they financially mean to you and to how you want to conduct your practice and what you think you want to emphasize in terms of how you interact with your patients. And with that, I'll open it up for questions. Yeah, Thanks, so I appreciate it. Um, I wanted to take a second to, uh, um, you know, uh, remind everyone to, if you have any questions down there at the bottom, the Q and A section and the chat section, enter those and we'll get to them. And also just wanted to take a second, Gary, to, uh, to, to thank the support uh, of industry for us to come together, uh, specifically um, our, our premium supporters in Allergan, Johnson & Johnson, Tier Science, Airy, Novartis, and Santine. Um, it's, uh, it's great that they're allowing us this space to kind of come together. Yeah, I want to echo that as well, because, you know, times are tough right now for everyone, not just us. It's, it's tough for industry. Um, I saw that for the first time in modern history, no cataract surgery is being performed anywhere in the Northern Hemisphere uh, simultaneously. So, um, you know, all these companies that have stepped up to support this um, are really doing so um, in a tough time. And I really want everyone to, um, if you see your reps for, the, for these companies, um, send them a thank you if you find this uh, program to be, um, you know, useful to you in your business because I, they're stepping up in a time when it's tough for everyone. So I, I don't want that to go unnoticed. Uh, so with that, let's go ahead and take some questions from our, from our audience. 
Um, I'll start with one. Um, Paul, when you look at the rates for the um, billing by the, by the minute or by the hour, does that look low to you uh, coming from the world of, uh, uh, from the legal world? Forty-one minute, forty forty dollars or so for uh, for a half-hour phone call. It seems like our rate should be a little higher than that. Right. So if you put the slide back on for a second, so people can see it. Um, yes, the telephone the telephone codes are very old codes. Very few uh, Medicare has never paid for them. Most commercial insurers have not paid for them. Uh, some commercial insurers, I found out recently, interestingly enough, will allow. Uh, physicians to bill a phone call as a telehealth visit, even if there's no video involved. So I know we're focusing on Medicare here, but you need to check with your commercial insurers to see if they will allow you to report a telehealth visit for just a phone call. Because if you can do that, then you're going to get paid the E&M visit with level four or five, which is, is much more reasonable. On the Medicare side, no, these codes have not been um, evaluated for a long, long time. One of the reasons, even so they're, they're there's new, the waivers are affect these. That's why I put them on here, but I would agree with you. And I can tell you there's already going to be people already talking about a big push to get these codes revalued so that they pay more because you're exactly right. Yeah. One other question I had is you talked about mid-level providers and, you know, in our, in our world, you know, our technicians do a lot of um, patient interaction They're, They would not be the equivalent of a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant, but is there any possibility we can have our technicians calling patients to doing, to doing the little check-in visits? Well, so that's a good question. Uh, right now, I, the answer is no, but CMS in the rule that came out, which we're presenting today, they did ask for comments on whether they should expand the ability of other types of clinical staff to be able to bill for virtual check-ins and, and, and other stuff as well. So those are questions that I would hope that the medical specialty societies would be posing to CMS to ask. Um, and, and I would say, the, you know, the American Academy of Ophthalmology, the others, I would expect, especially folks on this uh, uh, podcast, call them up and ask that they should ask those questions and see if they can convince CMS to allow that. Paul, there's a, um, if y'all could pull up the uh, slideshow one more time and go a couple of slides back. Paul, there's a question about the, um, the uh, nine four codes. Um, that you had on there. Carlos asked a question about they weren't previously uh, covered. So he, he was he was asking about the, the 994 codes uh, not previously being covered by Medicare. Um, will they be covered now? And then also, um, you know, I want to kind of figure out the difference between this, the 99421 and the 992 uh, code. So for instance, I've been doing mostly 99213 uh, for all of my E&M level telemedicine visits that feature synchronous AV. Um, so should I should I be doing nine nine four two three or nine nine one two one three like I've been doing? If you can kind of talk about the difference between those. Well, so so these codes here are strictly for online services. So if you do an audio visual uh, uh, telehealth visit with a patient, you shouldn't be billing these at all. You should just be billing your your E and M codes. So nine nine two one three, which I believe pays maybe sixty or seventy dollars now, whatever it is. Those are what you should be billing for audio visual. The real question is, as just pointed out, if you're only doing audio, then you're sort of stuck with Medicare and billing those really low paying phone calls. These are actually sort of low paying also, but these are strictly for online. I think the theory here is 
is that the doctor is sort of returning these at, at leisure, right? These are not real time. These are not sick patients. These are people that pose questions and you go back and forth and you're just typing an email. So the payment level is lower. Uh, but my general view of it in terms of demonstrating my bias is that physicians should do as much as they can to, to qualify for telehealth visits so you can actually build a level of service that you would have billed if you had seen the patient. And Leslie has a question here. She says, if I do telemed visit uh, and then do a few, few emails for follow-up the following week, can I build an e-visit the second week as well? And, and, and maybe why might she do that versus simply just scheduling another telemedicine call? It's like, you know, just saying, hey, you know what, I, I'm going to schedule another telemedicine call, another E&M eight days from now versus sending an email. Could you do both? And would the email be covered? Right. So, so you could do both. It's, it's, they give physicians a choice, but there are these rules for, um, for the phone calls and these uh, digital visits that we just had up on the screen that you cannot bill those if you had a, a, a visit in the last week. Now, I interpret that to mean not just a face-to-face -face visit, but also a telehealth visit. So let's say someone has a telehealth visit today, it's level three or four telehealth visit, and today's Monday. That means that the follow-up emails would all be bundled in to that visit for the next week. But in the following week, say next Tuesday is eight days, then you could get paid for phone calls or for the digital online codes. But you're right. I mean, if you think it's medically necessary to do an audiovisual visit, that would pay more and Medicare would be happy to pay for that as well. So the physician has a choice. Gary, what do you think about like adding on like, like visual field services and external photos? Have you, have you thought about that? Yeah, you know, this is something I sort of teased on Twitter um, a, a few days ago. Um, there's a really awesome website I want everyone to, uh, to check out. It's called keepmysite.org. Let me make sure, I think that's exactly the right, it's keepmysite.org. Um, Dr. Sean Yanchulov, great friend to all of us in ophthalmology, has come up with this foundation. So it's a charitable foundation. There's no, you know, not, not for profit. And he's come up basically with two validated um, uh, visual field tests. One is comparable to a 24-2 and one is comparable to a 10-2. So you have both um, peripheral field testing and central field testing. And it's something that, as I understand, is going, he's going to be allowing doctors to send their patients sort of a code that will allow the doctor to uh, review that with the patient. And so the question, the question is to Paul, Allison, and, and Tom is, do you think that because these are visual field tests that I, I'm pretty sure have been validated, um, would, would we be able to allow the interpretation component of a visual field code, especially for those glaucoma patients, or those macular degeneration patients or macular edema patients who are sitting on the sidelines, not able to get in and, and get checked out. I've been curious about your thoughts on that. Well, so I, I have a question. Is, is, the, is the website going to charge the doctor for the get, giving the code to the patient? I don't believe so. Okay. So my view of it is, is that this is, this is a diagnostic test. So it, fall, it doesn't fall into the telehealth waivers. It falls into what would Medicare allow generally for diagnostic tests. And I said before that, you know, the radiologists review things all the time and interpret things all the time when they're not physically present. I think that if it's a valid test that the interpret the doctor could bill for the interpretation. I think it's probably safest to have the AO uh, contact CMS to confirm that and to find out if the website's going to charge 
whether or not the doctor could build a technical component is it, so that they can you know pay the, the website for the ability to use it. But I think I, I think at this point it's low risk to build the interpretation. Okay, it's actually I'm, I I want to clarify. It's keepyoursite.org. K e e p y o u r s i g h t dot o r g. So just for clarification. And maybe one, one last uh, one last question from Daryl here, and I, I I think I know the answer. But he said, is there a time restriction uh, between telehealth visits? For example, must you wait X number of days between telehealth visits for a typical follow up? My understanding, because I asked this question a few times, is you know if, if you're following a patient, let's say it's a Shalazian, and, and you want to see that patient the following week. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter if it's three days later or eight days later. That's a, that's a separate E&M code level visit, right? Yes, that's correct. There's no, there's no free, in the, in the cases where there were frequency limits, like for nursing home visits and inpatient visits, they've done away with, with, with all the limits. So you can, you can do whatever you need to. You could do visits every day. I mean, at some point, someone could audit you for medical necessity if you're billing a visit every day for a week, but there, there's technically no limit. That's correct. Yeah, the deal is if you plan to see them 24 hours later or next available or a week prior, or if you're going to see them in person a week prior, then the telemedicine visit doesn't count. But if you're seeing them telemed, you can see them, you know, four or five times if it's medically, you know, necessary, obviously. Well, right. No, the telemedicine, you can always bill. Um, right. It's the e-visits e and the telephone calls that are subject to the peculiar rules about seven days in the next 24 hours, and the virtual check-ins are subject to that also. So we should probably switch over to the next topic if we can. Uh, next, I'm going to talk about advanced payments for Medicare. The advanced payments, first of all, what are these things? And they have been around for a good long while. Advanced payments relate to what can go to Part B suppliers. Suppliers is a term of art within the Medicare program as opposed to providers, which are basically brick and mortar hospitals and such. Uh, but uh, ASCs and physician practices both qualify as suppliers. So either you or your ASC could, could uh, take advantage of this. And the payment amounts can be up to 100% of what your historical claims were over a past three month period. Yeah, CMS is a little vague on exactly which three months they're going to look at, uh, but it, I'm sure this, this will be a detail that can be worked out. So it's a significant amount of money that could come in uh, through this. And the idea is they're making an advance payment that is essentially to be paid back by offset against incoming claims in the future. Now that creates an issue if you don't have any incoming claims, and we'll come back to that in just a minute. And you should emphasize that there's no provision for forgiveness on this. This is not a grant. It's essentially a loan. And you need to be cognizant of that as, as a business matter. I put in the box down at the bottom here the notion about accelerated payments because you may hear about this. And in fact, CMS has a, a nice fact sheet out there which talks about accelerated and advanced. The two terms relate to what goes on for you guys or what goes on to hospitals. They're very similar uh, programs. The accelerated payments were um, introduced, I think, if not changed very substantially by recent legislation. Uh, the the uh, Part B stuff, the advance payments, uh, has, as I said, been there for quite a while. It has now become significantly more liberal as a result of CMS waivers. If you want to take advantage of this, you contact your MAC. Uh, they're not going to come after you. You go to see them. 
the amount will be set, as I described earlier, 100% of the supplier's claims volume in the past three months. Uh, they say at different points it's based on a good faith estimate or you don't really need to know because the MAC knows. So somewhere in between there is, is the true answer. I, I can't get any more detail from that right at the moment. Then is a hundred, it's important to pay attention to the sequencing here. So on day one, you apply for a claim, and then after 120 days, you have, to, you, uh, you have 120 days during which Medicare will offset the ongoing payments against the loan. I'm sorry, during 120 days, you will be free and clear, nothing goes on. After 120 days, then Medicare will start offsetting claims payments against the loan and they're going to be looking for the payback to be completed by 210 days. It's a no interest proposition during this 210 day period. So that may seem uh, fairly attractive. If there is an outstanding balance at 210 days, CMS is going to look for payment. Supplier must either make a direct payment uh, or CMS may say at that point, okay, we're gonna treat this as an overpayment and that means they're gonna start charging interest and they may be prepared to offer you some kind of terms surrounding that, but that's the sort of way they usually handle overpayments. Uh, to qualify, the supplier must have billed within a certain period of time. Uh, they must not be in bankruptcy. Uh, you can't be under one of these investigations as noted here and you can't have outstanding or delinquent overpayments. So as long as you've been upright in your business dealings with Medicare and they don't have any complaint against you, you're okay. If you, you know, don't, aren't able to tick all these boxes, then you wouldn't be eligible. Um, the request must be made at the level of the individual NPI because that's how they figure out how much they're going to send. But the payments go the way any other Medicare payments are made so that they can go to your TIN if you're set up to receive payments that way. Each MAC has a form. These forms have been around for a long while. And what we're advised is that they include a number of elements that are old and don't really apply in this circumstance. So you need to work with the MAC and figure out what you really need to answer. Some parts you simply don't need to answer uh, because they're not applicable, but they will clear, make this clear to you supposedly and they're going to turn these things around very rapidly. So you go off to see the MAC and they'll, they'll, they'll give you the, the particulars. So if you're in a practice with say five physicians, each physician needs to set up this advanced payment based on their own NPI number. It can't be the practice sending out one application. Is that correct? That's correct. If, if all want to participate. Okay. Three do and two don't and that's okay. Okay. And then the repayment we, would be also based on that physician's billings. Yes, that's correct. Okay, thank you. All right, moving forward then. This is, I think, our final slide for the afternoon. Do they make sense for you? So interest-free loan, 210 days. Yeah, that's not trivial, particularly if you're up against it. Um, but be aware that Medicare will automatically start to recapture at 120 days. Uh, in order to offset the loan. And that can conceivably eliminate any cash flow you're getting from them for some period of time. Now, you can ask to have the repayment at a lower level. That's going to mean you're gonna need to, you're gonna have to 
come back at them with more later. So you have some ability to sculpture this, to, you know, to your own circumstances to a, a little bit. Uh, and that's noted in the next bullet. You can ask to repay more quickly. So it's not like you're locked into this. Um, if you at, at uh, day 120 have, you know, are a good cash position, you want to pay it, just pay it all back. That's fine. Then you're done. Uh, or at least you can ask to do this. There doesn't seem to be any problem with doing it, but uh, you do have to have to check with the, with the Mac about it. And you can arrange to have it or ask to have it arranged to, that you would repay directly, uh, you know, send them checks from your bank as opposed to having the offset arrangement. So if that is, it seems appealing, apparently that can happen. At 120 days, this just sort of amplifies what I spoke of earlier. CMS is gonna look and see, well, what's left in the pot at that point? And if there is any balance left, they're gonna be looking for some kind of a balloon payment, as we think of with mortgages and so forth. Um, and if they don't get it, uh, then they're going to consider the matter an overpayment. And the balance can be, sub if, if they do that, balance will be subject to a 10.25% interest at current rates. They change these interest rates you know, a couple times a year through uh, a notice process. And um, I think it's actually comes out of the Treasury Department. So it might go down if, if interest rates go down, but still it's, it's, uh, it's much, uh, you know, the, the government works this one to its advantage. Um, so it's not trivial. And as I, as I said a few moments ago, there's no forgiveness position, pr provision available at, for this at present. Not to say Congress might not conclude at some later point that, gee, we need to forgive all of these loans, but I wouldn't want to bet on that. Um, on the other hand, we're in a you know situation where all kinds of emergency uh, provisions are coming into place. But in terms of your business decision now, I think you should understand that at 210 days, you're going to need to be repaying or you're going to be subject to a very substantial interest rate. Okay, that's open for questions at this point. Yeah, I, th I think it, it would be hard to make an argument at this point where, um, as Matt Jensen said on one of our most recent podcasts, th there's a mad dash for, for hard cash right now where we're all trying to uh, shore up our balance sheets and uh, survive the, you know, the onslaught right now where we've got a lot of expenses and not a lot of income. So a, a 210 day interest free loan uh, sounds really good. Uh, it sounds like there's no prepayment penalties. So that money is it can be repaid whenever you want. And um, I think just a key factor is knowing that it's, it's per provider, not per practice. So that was something I learned today. Um, do we have any other questions, any other questions from um, our attendees? Blake, any questions that you might have or comments? Yeah, Tom, uh, the, um, the um, uh, way that they generate those three months, let's say I wanted to get that advanced CMS for April, May, June, right? Do they look at my January, February, March of this year to determine what the three months will be? Or do they look at my 2019 CMS and divide that by 12 to get the average monthly? And that's how I get the three months. I understand it is an actual three months uh, as opposed to you know an annual amount divided by 12 or what have you they are a little unclear about exactly what three months they would look at. Um, so I, I suspect it would be the three months on which claims have been filed. So they might uh, not look at the most recent uh, month because that would not be yet complete. Um, or if you had to close halfway through March, then they're probably going to be looking at December, January, February. But they haven't 
provide any clarity I've seen about that. This will be a, a detail the max would be working out. Right, so this is, I just want to add one quick thing. I, I saw somewhere where I, someone said it was the last quarter of 2019, because I think they feel that all the claims would have been submitted and paid, because you know they might have gotten paid for February and March claims yet. But I, that's the question you need to ask the MAC. You need to confirm which three months it will be. And if they have flexibility, it shouldn't be three months that you've actually gotten paid for everything, so it reflects the total amount. I'm sorry, Allison, if I interrupted you. Um. That's okay. I was just going to comment that one of the one of our uh, attendees has already interacted with Noridian on this, and evidently Noridian is doing it at a group NPI level, not at an individual NPI level. So, is that something we're going to have to figure out per Mac, or how does how does that work? I, I probably would ask the question then of your Mac just to make sure that you're, okay. you're getting it right. Um, uh, even though the words in the regulation may say individual, um, if they want to do it by group and give that as an option, that's that's their option. That's their you know ability to do that. Gotcha. And then is our ASCs allowed to do this as well? It's not just uh, providers. Yes, um, I know at least a one ASC has already got the check in the bank. Okay. Excellent. Well, I think we, we're up against an hour. I know when I talk to my attorneys, I try to keep it right at an hour. I don't like going over a minute more. Um, so I do want to thank everyone for being on the, um, the chat today and, and participating. I want to thank our panelists and, again, our sponsors for uh, making this happen. Um, just want to say to everyone out there who's listening and watching, uh, we love you. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Wash your hands. And uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk again soon. So thanks a lot, guys. Really appreciate it. Thanks, everyone. Brimar Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson & Johnson Vision Tier Science, Airy, Novartis, and Santin. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Brynmar Communications LLC, here in BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, in this webcast podcast.